Hey, thank you for uh, giving me a pass last week. Uh, I'm still not 100% with my voice, but last week was a disaster and uh, would not have been good for me to, to be up here at all. Um, I'm still on the men, but didn't you love the video uh, last week? I mean, holy cow, I heard so much feedback uh, from so many people just using words gobsmacked, blown away, uh, sharing this thing out, uh, because here we are in this day and age, and still new discoveries are being made about an ancient text. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'll never think about Mary Magdalene again, uh, she, because she is Mary the... Mary the Tower. I mean, wow, that's just incredible. Uh, a couple shout-out things uh, before we get rolling here. I'm going to get to, not that, but something else in just a second. Um, Dar mentioned the bathrooms being done in uh, the gym lobby, which uh, they're just about there. Um, I got to tell you, we have volunteers around here that are just incredible. Uh, we have invested a ton of, of capital money on capital improvements around this church in the past uh, few years, especially. And some of that money has uh, come from funds that we generate uh, from rental income. We always park a good chunk of that away so that we can keep our facility up. Uh, some uh, were given gifts uh, in memoriam of loved ones. And some were from grants in the community because uh, so many people believe in what we're trying to do in the community and they want to help us do that, particularly with the evacuation stuff. And what I want to tell you, though, is um, that there's no way that those funds could even come close to how much it really costs to pull these things off. Our volunteers here, and we'll celebrate them more fully next week, um, they have saved us tens and tens and tens of thousands of dollars because of their sweat equity. So I just want to say thank you again uh, to them. Huge. Huge. And then if you're a parent, you've gotten a hundred emails from me telling you about this if you're a parent of a young kid, but uh, right after church today, we're having a meeting uh, for you with pizza. You had to be a parent of a young kid, though, so, uh, so that's, that's the deal. Uh, we'll probably be uh, out in the playground area if the weather is nice enough, get the kids some fresh air, but we've got plenty of pizza for you, and we're having conversation about your hopes and dreams for children's ministry here. Uh, we've been really excited. Uh, we received a grant uh, for our family ministries here at Crosswalk, $50,000 a year for 10 years, which is incredible. <laughs> so... We want, to do, uh, we want to do really right by that, and we've already started in some things that we know we need to do, and uh, we just want to uh, find out more and more how can we be the best stewards of this. We just hired, by the way, a, uh, a person for our We Care, uh, which is our nursery program. So we have a lead caregiver. Her name is Emma Matheny, and a lot of you know her because she's been in and out here while she's been home from college and stuff. Uh, she happens to be extremely qualified, just graduated from Westmont uh, University, but has a ton of experience uh, doing church nursery kind of stuff, even here doing it. And she happens to be Karen Kinney's a grandma or granddaughter, <laughs> something like that. Uh, so anyway, so excited to have her, and she's super handy. Uh, I asked her if she's handy. She says, yeah, I'm handy. And so I was like, all right. So I met her down here, and she put together some stuff uh, for new stuff for our nursery program, our youngest things, and just nailing it. So, uh, and Jenny's here today, her mom, so so excited that you're here as well. Uh, so anyway, good things are coming, and good things are happening. I want to remind you who we are as a church. So uh, as a progressive church, uh, this is kind of how we roll here. We look at what Jesus' goal was because we're a Christian church, which means we're following as best we can in the modeling and teaching of Jesus. 
who I think he was doing everything he could to follow what he understood as God's goal for the world, uh, which is then our goal. And the primary goal or the biggest umbrella goal has to do with these words. There's not really one thing that defines it, but it has to do with resurrection, renewal, restoration, reinvigoration, sort of that part of the Lord's Prayer on earth as it is in heaven. There was a word in uh, Hebrew called shalom, and that word means wholeness, deep peace, not just internally with us, but uh, the whole world sort of working in harmony together. This is the great goal of God uh, from the very beginning of the Bible, all and all throughout the Bible until now. It's much more expansive than maybe you've heard, but it certainly is more compelling, I think. And Jesus taught some things that we need to integrate into our lives that help foster this reality. And in the Gospel of John, it comes out like this. So Jesus himself was a lifelong learner, so we stretch and are learning all the time. Jesus was one who knelt at service, so we find ways to kneel in service both as individuals and as a church. How do we serve those around us? Uh, grace, and I need to add grace and justice. Um, because Jesus was about that. Sometimes we wish, we wish in our uh, time, and some people tell us, that the church should stay in their own lane, stay in spirituality, let, let anything to do with social issues uh, be handled by politicians. But that's not what Jesus did. So Jesus, to a person, was interested in grace on an individual base, basis, but grace on a larger basis is expressed as justice or fairness. So when you see an entire people group that is not being treated fairly, doing things to promote their well-being and their fairness, that's part of what Jesus did, and that's part of what we do. Connecting with God, that's what we're uh, trying to do here. Uh, some of what we do on Sundays are part of that, particularly with our, our personal spirituality and meditation contemplation. I'm so excited that we have Dave here uh, to teach us about meditation. And then finally, this incarnate thing has to do with community. It's recognizing that we are people that uh, bear the image of God in us, and we can call that out of each other. We can support each other in that, in the highs and lows. These are the things that Jesus did, and the more Jesus in incorporated these things in his life, uh, the more that goal of shalom uh, was realized. And we're going to see that uh, come out in today's text. So today, um, we continue this series uh, called Love Strong, which is going to take us right through Easter. Uh, just uh, just love what Paul said to the Corinthian church, that the weakness of God is stronger than the greatest of human strength. And we're going to see Jesus exemplifying this today in, a, in an unusual way. And he's going to be going up some, to, against some serious power brokers. Uh, so we're going to be talking about a story of a blind man in the Gospel of John in chapter 9. So what you need to know a little bit about uh, John before we get too far. John wrote his gospel probably somewhere around 90 A.D., so that's a good almost 60 years after Jesus' life and ministry. A lot of things had happened by that time. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of things had shifted around. So when we read John, we need to remember we're not, we're not reading like a transcript from God. What we're reading is a guy who was very faithful, who had experience with God, or it's his disciples that are writing. We're not exactly sure, but we're, we're confident that at least the voice and the theology of John is showing up in this gospel, which is to say that John's fingerprints are all over it. His theology is all over this. His understanding of the world is all over it. And the other thing you need to understand, two last things before we jump into the text, is that when we look at the Gospel of John, we need to treat it differently than we would, say, a newspaper article. 
and we need to treat the Gospel of John differently than we do Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. You can look at them as one because they're related to each other and built on each other. And it's written sort of in a timeline fashion. It's sort of how you follow it along. Mark more than, more than the others for sure. But when John wrote his gospel, uh, he wasn't interested in timeline as much. There's a storyline there for sure. Uh, but he was more interested in theology. So you see him moving in theological chunks throughout his, his work. I've uh, been talking about that lately. Um, you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about Nicodemus having a conversation with Jesus, and it was the slow progression of him gaining an understanding. It was sort of in the dark, literally and figuratively, and began to wonder what's going on. The woman at the well, same kind of thing, a progression of faith, beginning to see more clearly. And today, we're seeing a story of a blind man who sees. So similarities all the way through. But these stories, while it may have happened just like it's read in John, the reality is that when John wrote his stories, they're really compilation works. That this one story that we're going to look at today could represent a dozen stories or a hundred stories. The story of the woman at the well wasn't probably just one story, but it could have been many times where Jesus had a similar thing happen. And certainly with Nicodemus, where he's talking to religious leaders, when we see that, it's not just once that we're seeing, but John is, is saying, I'm telling you this story, but know that Jesus ran into this and did this so many times. So that's kind of John's gospel, and it's helpful to know that. It's also helpful to know that John wrote this gospel 20 years after Jerusalem fell. Now the reason that's important is the people who were ruling Judaism at that time were called the Sadducees. Uh, they were a group that pretty much was just in Jerusalem, in the capital city, and they had a very distinct theology, a Jewish theology. There were four primary theological branches within Judaism being expressed at the time of Jesus, and Sadducees was one of those. It was highly political, didn't really believe in an afterlife, very law-oriented, very temple-oriented, and they ran the temple. That was kind of their deal. Frankly, they get a little bit of a bad rap because they were kind of living large. Uh, they kind of been known for enjoying their power. Uh, they were in tight with the Roman government, uh, and that was kind of their job. You keep the religious people in line, and we'll let you keep your temple. Well, uh, the religious people did not keep in line. <laughs> and long story short, there was a revolt which backfired completely because you don't, you don't take on an empire with pitchforks uh, who have an entire military machine you know, to wipe you out, which is exactly what they did. They went in, they sacked Jerusalem, they completely desecrated and wiped out the temple. So there's no more temple. And with no more temple, there's no more Sadducees. So you're going to see a word in the text today about the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. And John is going to use the word Pharisees. But I'm telling you, John is wrong. Should we then kick out the entire Bible because John made something up? No. The reason why John put Pharisees in there instead of Sadducees is because nobody by 90 A.D., especially a Gentile audience, a non-Jewish audience, would have any idea what he's talking about. But Pharisees, they were, they were by this time running the show. Jesus was from the Pharisaic camp, uh, so it, it totally fit. Isn't that important information to impress your friends with? <laughs> yes, it is. All right. So here we go. Uh, this is a really incredibly rich story about a guy, but it's way more than about this guy. So let's just check it out, and uh, I will probably stop a lot. Okay. So walking down the street, Jesus saw a man blind from birth. 
His disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents causing him to be born blind? Isn't that a question we still ask today, by the way? It is a question we still ask today. If you're a parent and you've got a kid that's struggling with something, you're thinking, oh, what should I have done differently? Or how, why did this happen? These are still relevant questions today. But definitely, that's how people believed back then. Jesus said, you're asking the wrong question. We should just stop there. You're looking for someone to blame. But Jesus goes on and says, there's no such cause effect here. Look instead for what God can do. We need to be energetically at work for the one who sent me here, working while the sun shines. When night falls, the workday is over. For as long as I am in the world, there is plenty of light. I am the world's light. At that point, the disciples looked at Jesus and were like, wait, what? We, we, <laughs> that is not, we, I don't even know what you just said. And that's fine because John is giving us a grand theological statement here from Jesus. One thing I want to draw really close attention to is Jesus in no way is saying that God caused the man's blindness so that some cool party trick could happen this day. God doesn't cause things like that because God is not causal in that way uh, theologically, which might blow your mind a little bit. So he's simply saying to the disciples, okay, Enough of this nonsense about being born blind, being uh, from the parents or grandparents, whatever. But you need to know in antiquity, uh, this was common popular theology. Uh, that very naturally we can quickly draw these uh, connections. That parents, if they had a man born blind, in that case, they would look at that as kind of a judgment against the child. As a wrath of God kind of a thing. And so they would wonder, oh my goodness, what did we do? And if they couldn't figure out uh, what was going on, then they're going to blame the in-laws because that's what we do. We blame the in-laws if there's a problem. So what did the in-laws do? Maybe it was a grandparent that did that. And there was even a little bit of popular theology in that day that thought that maybe the child in utero did something to offend God. And therefore... God's judgment came upon him. So, Reese, I know you're with child. You got a beautiful baby bump on your way there. Just tell that child in utero to be careful because you never know. <laughs> well, and they base that actually on an old, uh, old Testament story about twins in the womb who wrestled in the womb and wondered if God was upset with these two twins in the, in the womb. Well, Jesus is saying, no, that's not the point. The wrong question to ask. Well, let's talk about what we can do now. And he's talking about doing the work while we can because he knows that his time is short. So he said this stuff. And then uh, spit in the dust, like we all do, made a clay paste with the saliva, rubbed the paste on the blind man's eyes and said, go wash at the pool of Siloam. Siloam means scent. So he is going to a place that means scent. And the man went and washed and saw. Now, Let's be honest, this is normal. How many of you have been to the doctor's office and the doctor simply spat in the dirt and pasted some stuff on your eyes? Yeah, Ron? Okay, congratulations, man. It's obviously working for you and we're happy for you. All right, so uh, there was thinking back in this time. Um, again, this is popular Jewish theology back in the day. You have to dig a bit to find this. But there was a thought that the oldest Jewish son, especially if he was a righteous man back then, that his saliva had some kind of healing powers from God. Now, did Jesus believe this? I have no idea. Uh, did he think that maybe the blind guy may have believed this 
Well, I think there's a pretty good chance of that. Because why else would the blind guy be okay with this? It's kind of an interesting question beyond the scope of today. But I wonder how many of the things that Jesus did the way he did them, did them because that was the way to produce healing or that was the way that the culture perceived that healing would come and therefore this is the way we're going to roll it out. You know what I'm saying? There's a connection there between our capacity for belief and the way things are meted out. So anyway, um, this happened. And that's important for you to recognize. Let's just be clear. Right? In the dirt. Messing something up like this. Right? Kind of making a little spitball with dirt. Got it? That's what he's doing. Imagine Play-Doh of mud spit. That's the image I want you to have. No particular reason. I just thought it'd be fun to have you have that image. Well, actually, I'm lying. That's actually really important. So soon the town was buzzing. His relatives and those who, who year after year had seen him as a blind man begging were saying, why, isn't this the man we knew who sat here and begged? And others said, it's him all right. But others objected. It's not the same man at all. It just looks like him. And he said, it's me, the very one. And they said, well, how did you get your eyes opened? And he said, well, a man named Jesus made a paste and rubbed it on my eyes and told me, go to Siloam and wash. And I did what he said, and when I washed, I saw. Well, so where is he? And the guy says, I don't know. I haven't seen him. <laughs> I mean, you got to, right? It's right there. <laughs> Teed up. So they marched the man to the Pharisees. Now, this is really the Sadducees. That's why I put it in quotes for you, because it's really Sadducees who are running the temple, uh, but they're calling them the Pharisees. So think religious leaders at this point. This day, when Jesus made the paste and healed his blindness, was the Sabbath. Now, on the Sabbath day, you are to do no work. So... Jewish women in particular, before the beginning of Sabbath, which is on Friday evening at sunset, they would do all of their cooking preparation before the sun set. So they wouldn't be doing any work on the Sabbath day for that 24-hour period. One of the things that they would likely do in preparing meals was they would knead dough. Work, kneading dough. Jesus needed a spit mud ball. And that's going to cause problems because it was the Sabbath. So the Pharisees grilled the formerly blind guy again on how he had come to see. And he said, well, he put a clay paste on my eyes and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, obviously this can't be from God. He doesn't keep the Sabbath, if you're new to the whole storyline of Christianity and Judaism, uh, keeping the Sabbath holy, not doing any work, that's in God's top ten list called the Ten Commandments. Top ten. Don't screw it up. And Jesus <laughs> screwed it up. Fascinating. And, of course, the religious leaders are like, there's no way, there's no way God is with this guy. He can't even figure out one of the top ten. And others countered, yeah, but... How can a bad man do miraculous God-revealing things like this? So there was a split in their ranks. They came back at the blind man. Oh, by the way, I just want you to recognize, so far, what we have in the blind man is just he's recognized that Jesus was a healer. 
So light bulb moment for her, really obvious. Well, the guy's got healing capacity. And in antiquity from third parties, not just Jewish uh, or Christian parties, there were people who recognized that Jesus was known, they called him a magician, but it meant that he was a healer. And that's the first aha moment that this guy has is, well, yeah, I guess Jesus is a healer. And so they ask him again. Um, they came back at the blind man. You're the expert. He opened your eyes. What do you say about him? And now the guy is thinking about it a little bit more because he's hearing their dialogue about, well, who is this guy? And how could he have done this if he weren't from God? And so now the formerly blind guy's thinking, well, you know, the more I think about it, I think the guy's a prophet. Now, prophet doesn't mean necessarily a future teller, like crystal ball, and I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. I'm going to tell you it's going to rain on Tuesday and Wednesday, okay? So prophet. That's not what we're talking about here. A prophet is a truth teller, saying things the way they are. And so this guy, and hearing what the Pharisees, the religious leaders are saying, uh, this blind guy who probably had very little education, he's connecting dots. And he's saying, this guy's more than a healer. Obviously, God's with this guy. I think he must be a prophet. He must be one of those guys. And the Jewish leaders didn't believe it, didn't believe the man was blind to begin with. So they're trying to figure out a workaround. How can, we, how can we disqualify this thing so we don't have to deal with the uncomfortable reality that Jesus may have actually been you know, an agent of God and that a miracle happened in this way on the Sabbath with a Sabbath violation? <laughs> it sounds like in modern-day politics, doesn't it? <laughs> let's, let's find out what, what some extreme group is saying about this. So they just convince themselves this can't be the guy. So they called the parents of the man now bright-eyed with sight. And they asked them, Is this your son, the one you say was born blind? So how is it that he now sees? And his parents said, Well, we know he's our son, and we know he was born blind, but we don't know how he came to see. Haven't a clue about who, oops, who opened his eyes. Why don't you ask him? He's a grown man and can speak for himself. His parents were talking like this because they were intimidated by the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who took a stand that this was the Messiah would be kicked out of the meeting place, disfellowshipped. That's why his parents said, ask him, he's a grown man. Now, I want you to understand the severity of this. This is not cowardice on the part of the parents. They are being extremely strategic. So some of you are at the age where you are drawing uh, social security. And that wonderful uh, socialist gift that you have <laughs> is, a, is helping you with income, and it's helping you with your medical bills. Do I got that right? Is that how that works? I want you to imagine that if you decided today to take a stand for Jesus, uh, that there would be government officials that are listening in, which who knows, maybe they are. Uh, and once they identified which of you said, well, I'm kind of thinking Jesus is, is the goat here, uh, you get a letter the next week in the mail saying, because of your stance, we are withdrawing your Social Security benefits, your income and your health care. That's the severity we're talking about here. This is no little... You know, okay, you're kicked out of this church, so we'll just find, you know, one of a dozen more in the community to go uh, break bread with. No, this is different than that. This is serious, serious cheddar on the line is what we're talking about. So we respect 
their strategic maneuvering here and keeping the thing focused on their son. So they called the man back a second time. And in all honesty, they weren't there when this thing went down, so they really didn't know. They're not lying. They're just saying, ask him. He's of, he's of age. And so they called the man back a second time, the man who'd been blind, and told him, give credit to God. We know this man is an imposter. Now this formerly blind man is getting some gumption. And he replied, you know, I know nothing about that one way or the other. But I know one thing for sure. I was blind, and now I see. Does that sound like a familiar refrain that might have shown up in a very beloved hymn? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. It comes from this story. That phrase, by the way, um, I was blind, but now I see, this became a part of the baptismal ritual uh, in antiquity. Uh, early Christians would say this refrain, I was blind, but now I see, in talking about their, their faith in Jesus and following him. So they said, well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he says to them, I've told you over and over and over, and you haven't listened. Why do you want to hear it again? Are you so eager to become his disciples? <laughs> With that, they jumped all over him. Well, you might be a disciple of that man, but we're disciples of Moses. We know for sure that God spoke to Moses, but we have no idea where this man even comes from. And the man replied, This is amazing. You claim to know nothing about him, but the fact is he opened my eyes. It's well known that God isn't at the back, at the beck and call of sinners, but listens carefully to anyone who lives in reverence and does his will. That someone opened the eyes of a man born blind, which is a sign of sin, by the way, and opening those eyes is a sign of forgiveness of sin. That, that someone opened the eyes of a man born blind has never been heard of, ever. If this man didn't come from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. So they turned the tables on him. They said, you're nothing but dirt. How dare you take that tone with us? Then they threw him out in the street. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out and went and found him. He asked him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man said, Point him out to me, sir, so that I can believe him, because I haven't seen him. And Jesus said, You're looking right at him. Don't you recognize my voice? The man says, Master, I believe, and worshiped him, which is a way of saying uh, revered him. This is a beautiful story, and I want to stop here before we see a final exchange between Jesus and the religious leaders. You know, my hunch is that um, there are some of you who have felt a lot like the blind man in your life at some point, or there have been people who have, who have tried to squash you down and try to minimize your experience. And in so doing, um, they act a lot like in different ways, different storylines, but they feel, you feel an awful lot like this guy. Uh, that they're saying from their high and mighty place that you're dirt, that your story doesn't matter. And what I want to just stop and recognize right now is that Jesus sees you in that story, and he's a part of your story. He's a part of your future. And Jesus is not one who rejects you, but comes alongside and has conversation.
And I hope that some of you, if you're particularly um, resonating with the blind man because of that dynamic, I hope that you feel and sense the grace and love of God because that's what's there for us. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So this guy's now been kicked out of the temple. Whatever benefits he had are now gone, and the only thing he's got is Jesus. And so he becomes a follower uh, right then and there before their eyes. Well, the story's not over. Jesus then said to the guy, I came into the world to bring everything into the clear light of day, making all the distinctions clear so that those who have never seen will see, and those who have made a great pretense of seeing will be exposed as blind. Some Pharisees overheard him and said, does that mean you're calling us blind? And Jesus said, if you were really blind, you'd be blameless. But since you claim to see everything so well, you're accountable for every fault and failure. What Jesus is really talking about here is what's grown popular uh, today, the, the phrase, the sin of certainty, of being so certain that the doctrine that we have, the dogma that we have, is absolutely true, and it cannot be wrong. That's the sin of certainty. And the Pharisees at this time were guilty of it. They had no room for God to do what God was wanting to do because it just didn't fit their box. And more importantly, not, this was not just you know, a theological musing or an interesting dialogue about how does God work, but this was going to directly affect their power. If you're in charge of the temple and you are saying to everybody that healing can only come through God in the temple, and we happen to be running the temple, we're God's anointed ones who bring about the healing that happens in the temple, and now some guy named Jesus pulled off a healing from God outside the temple, how are people going to start thinking about you? Their power is being threatened. Hardly the first time, hardly the first time, that power would be uh, an issue for religious leaders then and ever since. So some questions to think about today that I'm, I want to touch on briefly. Uh, what did the blind man represent? We'll get to that. Uh, what did the, the story mean to the disciples? We'll get to that. And what does it mean for system-bucking Jesus followers? We'll get to that too. And I just want to tell you that history repeats itself, give you the, the thesis right now, that all blind men and women who eventually see clearly, um, our call is to carry on, which we'll get to. So what did the blind man represent here? Well, by the time this was written in 90 AD, um, the Jesus followers are taking it on the chin a lot. Uh, they've now been kicked out of Judaism proper because Judaism, after the temple was destroyed, moved on. They no longer had any hopes or dreams of the temple being rebuilt and no longer began to think that it was sacrifice at the temple that was going to meet forgiveness for God for us. So that day was over. So they started to imagine what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to know that we're in good relationship with God, that things are okay? And you know what they figured out? They figured out that it was working out the ethic and the rhythms of being a, uh, a, a maturing Jewish person 
by living out the law and understanding what's been said and making that happen, that that was how they were going to experience shalom and wholeness. No longer sacrifices, but from working out this thing from within. They no longer needed at that point a Jesus who died for the sin of the world, and so the message of the early church became largely irrelevant to them because they moved on from the sacrificial atonement model altogether. But there was a group who was listening to that, and that would be first century non-Jewish people. That idea, that theology of needing to do something to get God to, uh, to forgive us uh, in, a, in a substitutionary atonement way for sure, that was still alive and well, and the early church was becoming more and more Gentile, not Jewish in its background. But the early Jesus followers were, were taking a beating, literally, uh, by the Jewish people and leadership around them. That's why the Gospel of John has been used as kind of a proof text, unfortunately, for anti-Semitism in Christianity ever since. It's not good, it's not right, but the anti-Semitism can clearly be lifted out of John's Gospel because John uses one large word, the Jews, as being the enemy of the new church. And I sure wish he would have used better language. But this is what they were experiencing. And so when they are hearing this story now, as people who have come to see the light of Jesus and have come to say, I recognize him as a healer, and the more they think about Jesus and what the ramifications of that meant and how he was and what he had to say, then they're moving on to, huh, I sure told a lot of truth. I think he was a prophet. And as their faith process continued to mature, they eventually get to the point of saying, you know, I think, I think this is God's anointed one, which is another word for Christ or Messiah. When those early disciples would see this story of the man born blind, they saw themselves. And the most important thing they saw was that just like they were experiencing the blind man got kicked out of the Jewish tradition entirely because they took a stand saying against the religious authorities that I'm disagreeing with you but Jesus was with them and if you're a Jesus follower at the end of the day that's all you need that's all you want so for those early disciples this was a balm to their literal wounds. And over time, uh, unfortunately, um, like I said, history has a way of repeating itself. And so uh, as soon as Constantine made Christianity uh, the global superpower's primary religion, things almost immediately ran amok. And now Christian leaders uh, had enormous amounts of power, and where there is power, there is corruption, and you have mixed affinities and mixed um, uh, reasons for motivations for doing anything and it just went from bad to worse. And that was 1500 years ago. Um, somewhere around a thousand years ago we have the Dark Ages and that's when the church took another wonderful turn and started to think in terms of ways that uh, we could literally in some way buy God's grace or forgiveness and so the early parts of indulgences started to come in. These are power grabs from religious leaders that used the faith to scare the hell out of people so that they would put money in the coffer. 
uh, people uh, brought into crusades saying, you will be saved, you will be welcome in heaven if you fight uh, for the kingdom of God, which also happens to look a lot like the same banner as our country's flag. And then 500 years ago-ish in there, another hard right turn where the church, uh, feeling very confident uh, that their sacred scriptures were indeed um, God's holy word and in their understanding meant that the Bible and the scriptures are completely right and cannot be questioned. It's inerrant. Cannot, it, is, it is without error and it's infallible. It cannot be wrong. When the scientific methodology started to advance and started to turn their gaze on the Bible itself and the theologies that that Bible bore, and science started to ask questions of the religious elite, you know, our scientific method is seeing some problems here with your text. How are we supposed to understand this? Instead of at that moment, till that time, science and religion got along great. But now they were at a, uh, an important decision point. And instead of saying, you know, let's entertain your voice. What can we learn from you? What are we here? Maybe we need to be flexible with what God is trying to say to us. Instead, they doubled down on inerrancy and infallibility. And a rift was created between religion, Christianity, and science that is still with us today. About 100 years in America, uh, a, uh, another decision was made uh, with um, some in our Christian tradition and politicians who wanted uh, religion to stay in their spiritual lane and don't talk about anything to do with how things are going with our country. And so they agreed. And uh, a particular branch of Christianity uh, was born, which was very popular, very loud. Uh, it grew great strength when the Soviet Union was formed and said, we are an atheistic country and we have nuclear arms and you are our, our biggest rival on the planet. Immediately, a lot of people wanted to get right with God. And so they found a wonderful opportunity with this new revivalism that was happening in the United States in the 50s and 60s. 40 years ago, continued to do a hard turn to double down on things which now have come back to bite us. Now we look at issues of inerrancy, infallibility, and other, other things that the doctrine has said, other mistranslations that get us in trouble, but the church doubles down on them, like last week, women and equality and all that stuff. How can, you, how can you look at this thing differently after you find out it's not Mary Magdalene with a checkered pass, it's Mary the Tower who's put on parallel with the Apostle Peter himself. I mean, good grief. It changes everything, but not for everyone. But for those who choose to challenge it, for those who choose to recognize there are some problems here. There are some ways we might want to consider thinking about here. We're seeing God work over here, even though it may not be in our official camp. And God seems to be revealing God's self in new ways that may be new and different than we've seen before, that may not fit all the boxes that we've put in place for God to, you know, be a well-trained puppy, you know, for. And what I want to say to you, if that's you, and I know... <laughs> I know I'm speaking to the choir for some of you because you've already experienced some of this. Expect your story to some degree to be a lot like the blind man. Because when you buck the system, the system bucks back. And when you mess with power structures, they buck back harder. So what do we do with this? Do we put our head in the sand? Do we decide, oh, forget it. 
not worth the effort? Or do we say to ourselves, I cannot deny what we have experienced. That God, whatever that is, whatever, whoever that is, which is nebulous and mysterious, but deeply present personally, as close as our next breath, yet as expansive as the unfolding creation, we believe that there's something else in the mix than flesh and blood that connects us, that animates us, that helps us dream, that helps us heal, that brings us together, that calls us forward to greater creativity and harmony. All these beautiful things that sure make sense and line up with the Jesus or the God that Jesus talked about. Are we to let that go? Or are we to stand and say, Master, leader, I believe. How can I not believe? Because I was once blind. And now I see. I once thought you were just this little, little person in history, but now I recognize prophet, no, more than a prophet, anointed one. How can I just keep my mouth shut? How can I do anything except carry on? And that's my encouragement to you, my friends, that as we continue to be open and humble with how God is forming us and stretching us and stretching the way we think, stretching the way we kneel in service, uh, helping us understand what it means to be uh, people of grace and justice for individuals and the community at large, uh, figuring out new ways to do a connection with God and mindfulness and contemplation, which, by the way, the church of yesteryear would look at as demonic <laughs> at its core, and here yet we incorporate it as part of our worship service, right? Uh, and how can we learn new ways of fellowshipping together to allow the Spirit to work within us that we might together be stronger and bring more of Shalom into the world. How could we not? How could we not? How could we not? So I want to finish today. Um, we've been using this in honor of Women's History Month. Uh, Teresa of Avila's prayer. She's got a lot of beautiful prayers, and this is one of them that we've been looking at. Uh, so uh, what I'd like to do with you um, is just spend a moment in quiet uh, first. We're going to get to this prayer in a second. Uh, but before that, if I could lead you through just a brief moment of silent uh, and guided meditation. So if you're comfortable, close your eyes and breathe deeply. And just want you to dial in a little bit um, to the facets of the story. Uh, have, have you ever felt like the blind man? has just been flat out discredited, insulted because of your beliefs, the way you're seeing the world. I know I have. Let me throw you a curveball. Have you ever been the Pharisee? Have you ever been guilty of the sin of certainty? Have you ever been the one that has inflicted the pain on the blind people around you? because you thought you were doing the right thing, what God wanted you to do. <laughs> Maybe it's always intention with us human beings. As Jesus followers, you are sitting at Crosswalk Community Church which is known in Napa as being on the rebellious side. How are you feeling about that? How have you been wounded because 
because you've chosen to find a seat here. Can you, along with the disciples for generations, look at this story and just be reminded that God is at work and that when we do our best to follow this God who is at work as best we can, as honest as we can, as graceful as we can, we can be assured that even when power structures and systems kick us around, the Spirit of God is still with us, calling us into deeper shalom, calling us to be agents of this shalom. It's ours to embrace. Take a moment. In Spirit of God, I'm just asking if you could um, tend to us as we need to be tended to this morning. Heal us where we need to be healed. Embolden us where we need to lose our cowardice. Break our sin of certainty. Listen for the Spirit of God to speak. faithful God. May we be faithful. Now congregation, I invite you to open your eyes and let's conclude our service today by using Teresa's prayer together. Lord, grant that I may always allow myself to be guided by you, always follow your plans and purpose, perfectly, sorry, accomplish your holy will. Grant that in all things, great and small, today and all the days of my life, I may do whatever you require of me. Help me respond to the slightest prompting of your grace so that I may be your trustworthy instrument for your honor. May your will be done in time and in eternity by me, in me, and through me. Amen. Thank you so much for being here. I hope you had a great experience. We'll see you next week for Palm Sunday. All right. Thank you.